Gernot Wagner is a climate economist at Columbia Business School. His research, writing, and teaching focuses on climate risks and climate policy. Gernot writes a monthly column for Project Syndicate and has written four books including Geoengineering, The Gamble, and Climate Shock. Before joining Columbia and serving as faculty director of the Climate Knowledge Initiative, Gernot taught at NYU and Harvard. In this conversation, I kept coming back to this hope that climate action could be, in some ways, uncomplicated. If the primary goal is to stop greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible in order to deal with this as a genuine emergency, it should be simple. But within the existing system of global capitalism that we have, though, how is that going to happen? Can it happen? I've been trying to think about this by having conversations with people like Gernot, people like Kyla Tianhara, Seth Klein, Mark Paul, and others, to just sort of attempt to get to the bottom of it. It's tough, but in these interviews, which I'll release in the coming weeks, I've been helped by their writing. We're at a point where, according to economists like Robert Pollan, at least 1-2% to of global GDP will need to be spent pretty much immediately on investments in renewable infrastructure to radically reduce emissions. Global GDP is about $80 trillion. How does that amount of globally coordinated investment happen under capitalism? It's a huge shift in the nature of the whole economy. One of the reasons I wanted to return to Wagner's writing is that I've been helped a lot by his explanation of the social cost of carbon, and especially the way that he writes about considerations of equity and justice in determining the social cost of carbon. It radically increases the calculation of damages that are created by emitting greenhouse gases, but what that means, in fact, is that if we factor in issues of equity, the number skyrockets, validating any and all investments in climate mitigation and adaptation. The question for me is, how could that sort of information become more central to decision-making and policy-making? We definitely get into the weeds here. I'm still processing the discussion we have about green growth versus the Green New Deal versus degrowth. I still can't say where I land on the question of whether decarbonization needs to happen in a textbook degrowth way. It's hard to balance expediency and strategy here, and yet increasingly the debate about economic transformation to fight climate change hinges on our receptivity to growth or degrowth. What I like is that there is room here for the debate. We need to rapidly phase out fossil fuels, that much is certain. In fact, we need to fully ban fossil fuels. How that decision gets made and what form action takes, at what speed and with what consequences, is still an open question. So, you know, I wish that we could just sort of um, talk about anything other than the climate emergency, uh, but it's, it's, it's ongoing, it's escalating, it's accelerating. Um, and yet, you know, we're at a moment where just this week, uh, the first ever African climate summit concluded. Um, you know, we're, we're coming up on the 28th COP, but this is the first African climate summit. And um, the sort of culmination of it was the signing of the Nairobi Declaration. Um, and I thought we could kind of start on this recent piece of news, um, which we could see as maybe a watershed moment, hopefully. Um, the Nairobi Declaration calls for a global carbon price on fossil fuel trade, shipping and aviation, among other things, uh, like they demand in the de declaration, a huge increase in renewable energy capacity throughout Africa. Um, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts on that, but I guess, you know, I, I'm guess I'm sort of checking in about the, the struggle over carbon pricing, because it's something that, you know, Seth Klein has written is has has sort of come to dominate the discussion about how to shift our carbon intensive way of life uh, away from what is so obviously disastrous um, the course that we're on you know like this has been a horrifying summer uh, and it's clear that like we're at a point where decarbonizing has to happen right now uh, in fact long before now um, 
because you've written about how pricing pollution, putting a high enough price on carbon can be an answer to the crisis. What I'm wondering basically is, you know, are you concerned at all about this kind of push for a carbon tax? Do you think it's adequate? It is, or it would be. You know, is this going to mean that we will have a global uniform carbon tax with sort of the perfect, like, like, of course not, right? Um, Is it good that there's an understanding that, yes, that would be the right move in the right direction? Of course, sure. But frankly, I think the exciting bit right about now is precisely that there is this global clean energy race, and it is a race among nations um, in the right direction. Are we winning this climate fight as we speak? No, we are not. Are there lots of things happening that are pointing in the right direction? Yes, absolutely. And the exciting bit, I guess, is that it goes well beyond this, you know, what I would call a bit of a naive call for, you know, the carbon tax that will finally solve this problem once and for all. It won't. Mm -hmm. Or for that matter, the sort of perfect policy that will, you know, do it all. You know, it exists in theory, sure. Will we get it? Well, no, right? We haven't in decades. Yeah, I think this is something that I, I kind of got out of reading Holly Jean Buck's book, Ending Fossil Fuels, but also Ministry mm-hmm. for the Future, Kim Stanley Robinson's kind of sprawling climate fiction <laughs> opus. Yes. Um, the idea that there are, first of all, just sort of cognitive errors that human beings make in looking for the single unitary like base cause Um, And I think like bring that into conversation with like Buck's book, she talks about how something like fossil fuel subsidies, for example, are seen as low hanging fruit to some extent, like you just remove fossil fuel subsidies. But doing that has particular like knock on effects in the economy um, that might sort of hamstring climate action in certain ways. It's just like you start pulling at this very densely knotted uh, problem and it 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 doesn't easily unravel. And so, like, I think what the last time we spoke, the thing that you sort of pointed to and really emphasized in our conversation, you know, when talking about shifting away from like fossil fuel dependency is the sort of baseline problem of changing social norms. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's not that's not one single problem. Right. Um, it's 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 like many problems sort of interwoven. Um, and it does feel like if we're just focusing on pricing carbon, we're avoiding like discussions about social norms. We're, we're avoiding discussions about like regulation too. Um, and I wanted to ask you about your, your kind of evolving thinking around regulation. It feels like regulating both production and consumption of fossil fuels is something that is, is difficult. And you point out that like nobody has yet done it, Right. Um, there could be targeted bans, but it's just not happened yet. Well, actually, okay. So let's start with, okay, bans are fossil fuel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so turns out that was the very first time we ever tried to do anything about the burning of fossil fuels was in fact a ban. And I'm, you know, this is way back when, and no, it wasn't for climate reasons, mm-hmm. but in 1306 England, I, I hope I'm getting the date right now. Is it King Edward the first, right? Like 14th century stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. We had a ban on the burning of sea coal. Um, penalty for repeat offenders, death. Um, now, okay, not done for climate reasons, right? It was done because the air in central London and Nottingham and so all was, you know, filthy. And I think mm-hmm. the queen mom or the king's mom uh, had uh, had asthma or, you know, but, you know, suffered from some kind of debilitating illness. And, you know, the son, the king, uh, banned the burning of sea coal. Um, by the way, that ban did not last long. Um, his mm. brother, I believe, got rid of it again. Uh, it turns out, right, the sort of energy is just too valuable um, and uh, people burned it anyways, right? And you can't execute everyone. So it turns <laughs> out that, you know, that ban disappeared. Um, mm. Now, that said, okay, fast forward to today, you know, England, uh, Great Britain has two coal plants still in existence and none of them, as far as I know, 
today are running, right? So like we went from a ban through, you know, one industrial revolution later and like a million people or so 5% of the workforce working in the coal sector to basically fewer than 2,000 people working in the British coal sector um, and no operating coal plant. Now, okay, is that a ban? No, it wasn't, right? It Like coal was not banned. Coal was not regulated out of existence by basically saying thou shall not burn any coal. But well, for lots of factors, and you know, Margaret Thatcher trying to crush the coal union was one of the one of the main causes, by the way, of the of the sort of decline of the last uh, four decades or so of the British uh, coal sector. Mm. Um, uh, so it wasn't all done for climate reasons. So for the most part, actually, it wasn't. Um, but effectively, we have well regulated coal out of existence in the all-encompassing sense of the term. And of course, some of this is, you know, gas has become so cheap as the alternative to coal, as the fossil alternative to coal. Um, and no, that's not all good news. Methane leakage is a big problem and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, CO2 emissions are down as a result. Was that one right benevolent social planner calling for the end of coal as we know it. No, it was lots of contributing factors. But yeah, effectively, the burning of coal might as well be banned in Great Britain right about now, in the UK right about now, because you know it is. Nobody wants to do it anymore. Right? Like, right. it's gone. It's, it's been phased out, but like sort of for almost social and economic reasons. Exactly. Certainly still a problem globally, right? Of course, um, of course. But is it where the social license around coal has, has disappeared to some extent of, in the UK? Uh, yes, right? Okay, and now, okay, so now the big question is, okay, so how do you do this more widely? Well, okay, let's go to the U.S., um, last count, I, 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 I think, is 210 operating coal plants in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. That's 210 more than there should be. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, there's this amazing RMI, uh, Rocky Mountain Institute study of those coal plants, uh, the uh, coal transition, where basically I think it's for 209 out of those 210, almost all of them, mm. it would pay to shut down the currently operating coal plant and replace it with, quote unquote, local renewables, right? So, I mean, that's sort of the key bit, right? It's it's not as easy as saying, oh, it will be cheaper to produce solar power down in Arizona, so let's shut down the coal plant in Maine, right? Like, that's not how that works. Um, it's about local replacement of that source of electricity. And yes, uh, it, it's literally, there's one coal plant in Wyoming where that's not the case, apparently, according to this study. But for all, for the other 209 out of 210, yeah, you could shut down the coal plant, replace it with locally produced solar electricity plus four hours of storage built in already, um, or wind, again, local uh, wind sources. Um, mm -hmm. And it would pay economically right now, as in the operating expenses of the coal plant, mm. not mm. counting the climate pollution, just the operating expenses of the coal plant are higher than it would be to replace, like to build the solar uh, PV uh, facility or the wind farm and so on um, and produce the same kind of electricity. Right. There's a um, business case for it. There is a narrow business case for doing so. Now, okay, why isn't it already happening? Well, mm -hmm. because of vested interests, because of um, you know, the coal plant has the right to put the electricity on the grid and the, and the solar farm next door doesn't. And right, there's lots and lots of questions. There mm -hmm. is uh, power purchasing agreements that lock in coal power for 20 years and so on and so forth and basically highly subsidize the production of that coal. Uh, right. power electricity and uh, you know all of that you know these are complex issues right none of this is easy to say oh by the way a price on co2 would solve it well actually as this example shows it would help of course but no it actually wouldn't right because mm. the power purchasing agreement well with or without carbon tax is still gonna stand in the way of replacing that coal plant immediately even if it is even more uneconomic to run with hmm. the carbon tax than without the carbon tax. So 
yeah, complex problem, complex solutions. Now, would this price on CO2 help in theory? And and does it do so in practice? Of course it does. But mm-hmm. um, no, it's not the one size fits all solution. And what about pairing it? Because like in Nova Scotia, we're seeing the introduction of not just carbon pricing, but also clean fuel regulations. Like that's a separate uh, but related thing. And, you know, you've, you've spoken about how clean energy standards are going to need to be put in place to make renewable energy mandatory, um, you know, with the ultimate vision of a world where there's no demand for carbon and no suppliers of it. Um, could you kind of expand on like that vision and the place of sure. you know, clean I mean, energy policy? Well, this is sort of, okay, and um, frankly, this is the big question of actually what counts as a price per ton of CO2. So, right. you know, the U.S. does not have a federal price like that, Sure. Well, we do have renewable portfolio standards at the state level. Over half of U.S. states have those RPSs, which basically, you know, up to a point, mandate renewables to be entering the system, the grid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, if you calculate the implicit price of some of these standards, they actually are to the tune of a couple hundred dollars per ton of CO2. So, you know, implicitly, yeah, there is a price on CO2, um, a pretty high one or, you know, high enough to sort of be in the order of magnitude of what it should be. Um, And that's all good news. And yes, right. So Nova Scotia or elsewhere, um, where you basically have the sort of incentives that point in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, Well, would you count them as a price on CO2 directly? Mm -hmm. Maybe not directly, indirectly. Certainly. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's that I'm really interested in this. And it kind of gives us an opportunity to move into, I feel like we're kind of, you know, I want to move into basically like theories of economics, you know, like and and the structural view, because there is this concern that we hear really from like most sides of the political spectrum, except for maybe like the the what I'll call like radical eco-socialists which are not to disparage them. Like I think that uncompromising position is a legitimate one, but there there are concerns that slapping taxes on energy uh, is going to destabilize whole economies. Um, You know, how do we price as it were, or regulate fossil fuels out of the market, which we're agreeing is a necessity without like blowing up the whole model? Like, is it necessary to kind of scrap it? as it were, in order to, you know, well, okay, so, it. Okay. Loaded question. Um, sure. No simple answer. Um, I mean, frankly, what has happened, and, you know, maybe this is, in some sense, the biggest shift as of late. Uh, you know, this is the International Energy Agency, right? No sort of activist organization mm-hmm. um, saying in, I think, 2020, 2019, that solar PV is now the cheapest form of electricity in history. It's the cheapest source of electricity in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's under certain conditions, right? You've got to put the solar panel on the south side of the roof if you're in the northern hemisphere, not the north side and so on, right? And you need cheap mm-hmm. financing and so on and so forth, of course. Um, but yeah, um, you know, there's no turning back either, right? Like if solar PV is the cheapest way to produce electricity, the technology is only going to get better. Right? We're not going to get worse at producing solar PV panels. We're going to get better. It'll be even cheaper. And in some amazing sense, right? Sort of the immediate rejoinder might be of someone in like 2022 to say, oh, wait, didn't solar PV just increase in price relative to 2021? Yeah, it did. Um, but fossil fuels increased by even more, right? So this is sort of at the height of the fossilflation uh, crisis of the you know after the after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and so on, um, whereas fossil prices were increasing by like two hundred percent or so, right over a few mm-hmm. months, um, solar PV increased by like twenty percent. Okay, fine, right? Solar PV prices did go up in an absolute sense, but mm-hmm. the relative price that matters compared to fossils, solar PV was even cheaper right. at the height of that fossilflation period. Um, than uh, compared to anything else. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, maybe, or I would say not just maybe, but definitely that is the biggest change we have seen of late is precisely these 
massive declines in the price of solar power compared to basically anything else, right? I mean, wind has gone down too, and it was sort of cheaper for longer. It had been cheaper for longer, but there's just no comparison, even between wind and the rapid price decline of solar PV. Interesting, um, yeah. And that's just, right, that's a completely different world. This is literally, yeah. right, and this is yeah, now yeah. these sort of socioeconomic tipping points, these positive tipping points were... Um, you know, it used to be there were, you know, massive subsidies for solar in Germany. So there were a bunch of Bavarian villages where basically you couldn't see a single home without solar panels on the roof. Right. And all of that is good. Sure. Um, but it was, you know, it was small scale, if you will. It's mm-hmm. certainly not small scale today. Right. Yeah. And like we should definitely talk about scale in detail, I think. Right. Um, you know, I, I watched Oliver Stone's new Nuclear Now documentary, and he kind of writes off renewables as not really being able to provide the level of, elect, you know, meet electricity demand globally that we're going to see. And, you know, we need to be thinking about trying to, I think, scale down electricity usage. It's, you know, insane, the amount of elect- energy that, you know, is demanded in the market. But, you know, a lot of the debate in terms of scale about sort of um, economic transformation to fight climate change uh, has really kind of hinged on the whole green growth or green new deal argument versus the degrowth or scaling down argument. And like Robert Pollan writes really clearly about this. He says, you know, the degrowthers from his perspective never really engage with the question of like building infrastructure or what he calls like the climate stabilization project that's going to you know, save us effectively. Um, they're not necessarily looking at the numbers, he says, in terms of immediate economic impacts. Under uh, the Clean Energy Investment Project, average incomes would roughly double, while under degrowth, average incomes would experience a historically unprecedented collapse. This is his per- economic projection. Do you think decarbonization can be done in a pro-growth way? Uh, is, you know, is growth at all a problem? Okay, so I, I think I mean, that's, I mean, it's, in many ways, that's exactly the question that degrowthers are asking, right? Right. Or that's in some sense where degrowth got its start, if you will. Okay, so um, let me put it this way. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we've had these philosophical discussions long before climate became, uh, you know, the defining issue. Um, that's true. And frankly, you know, I mean, this is going back way back when, right? Like, you know, Karl Marx, right? Writing critiques, potent critiques and so on of, you know, the prevailing capitalist system and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and these debates have been happening forever, right? The, you know, degrowth is not, not new at all. Um, degrowth itself has undergone this amazing transformation, if you will, over just the last decade in the sense that, right, that like the first sort of, you know, the first the first popular book written on the topic was basically about, oh, growth is the problem, mm-hmm. right? Economic growth is the problem. Well, fast forward to today, and the argument is much more nuanced in the sense of, oh, growth of certain sectors is the problem, right? Big cars are bad, and they are, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, so, you know, that sector ought to shrink. And, you know, we can all look at that and say, yeah, we agree. Like, sure, fine, right? You know, big cars kill more pedestrians than anything and so on and so forth. And we've undone mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the the benefits of safer travel over, you know, three or four decades, basically within the last decade of SUVs and cell phones, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Distracted drivers and massive cars. And, you know, yeah, that's bad. Mm-hmm. But what tells us that it's bad is not some sort of philosophical macro degrowth argument. What tells us that it's bad is the very detailed microeconomic, if you will, study of figuring out how many more people die with every additional kilogram or pound of weight of one of these vehicles. Sure. Right. And they're also um, belching more greenhouse gas emissions. All and that. there's more CO2 and, and so on and so forth, right? So yeah. basically, the real argument is, yeah, there are technologies, there are products, there are entire economic sectors where there is more 
damage being caused by that one product, let's say, then it adds value to the economy on the one hand and, you know, in a broader sense to society more broadly. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be clear, you're speaking with someone who has never had a driver's license, has never driven in his life. Right. So, yeah, cars suck. Right. They, they, they kill everything. Right. Whatever the, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. hashtags are on, on, you know, no longer Twitter, uh, Mastodon and so on. And, mm-hmm. and I completely agree, of course. Um, yeah. But to arrive at that argument, right, that's not the growth. That's not some philosophical, uh, oh, there must mm-hmm. be a better world. Couldn't we all live happily ever after? I mean, yes, I'd like to think that there is a better world out there, of course. Um, and I hope most of us, all of us do, right? Like basically, you know, all you need to do is look out the window and realize that not everything is running swimmingly all the time. There are some problems that deserve fixing, of course. Um, but again, this is not some sort of philosophical growth versus degrowth. It's basically trying to say, um, in a much more nuance, you know, here's stuff that causes massive externalities, so let's you know shrink that particular sector. Let's get rid of mm-hmm. it. Let's transform yeah. it fundamentally. And then there's other things. And you know you mentioned Inflation Reduction Act, uh, Green New Deal, and so on, where mm-hmm. cutting emissions means massive investments in the right kind of low carbon, high efficiency technologies. And when I say low carbon, high efficiency, right? It means both. It means produce more clean electricity on the one hand. And yes, of course, use less mm-hmm. where that is appropriate on the other. Of course, that's part of the solution, right? Let's not, you know, just because you have unlimited carbon-free electricity does not mean that you shouldn't be insulating your windows better and decrease electricity demand in the first place. Better insulation, energy efficiency, um, living more densely in urban environments and walkable mm-hmm. urbanism and so on and so forth, right, is a good idea regardless. doesn't matter whether there is limitless carbon-free electricity to go around. There are, you know, better ways to organize ourselves as society and we should aim for that. And again, we should do that because we figured out that there are problems associated with the way we organize society right now and the way, you know, ever larger single family homes ever further out and so on and so forth. Um, that's not a degrowth argument, right? That's basically saying we are internalizing externalities, both the negative ones and the positive ones. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and it's interesting to kind of like see somebody like Pollen sort of reducing it to a division between these two camps even if that it's it's accurate, it sort of speaks to how um, so much hinges really on communication and trying to shift these social norms. Like you do need to try to broadcast the benefits mm-hmm. um, to like regular folks in order to make clear uh, what the value is of of this shift for them for their lives. I think right. Like you figured out a better way to organize yourself as a society yeah. as a small group of like fantastic. You want to call that degrowth? Go ahead. Fantastic. Um, But like you said, right, it's sort of picking people up where they are. um, And yes, green growth, if you will, right, growing the right kind of sector, this green growth mindset, if you will, uh, there's a lot to that, right? There's Mm -hmm. a lot to basically saying, wait, this is an opportunity. There are more jobs here in the green sector than the than the dirty one. And that's a good thing. Um, So Mm -hmm. let's invest in this technology. And by the way, that too is a good thing. Um, Yeah. The, the, the tricky part is like, we, you know, we don't necessarily, I think it's um, potentially polarizing to make it about schools of thought, make it about different philosophies, make it about um, your political stripes. Like we have learned that that is the case, but like, the unfortunate thing in some ways is that we do respond to symbols, that there is like totemic power to the logic of fossil fueled freedoms, you know, that people are attached to those things. There is similarly a kind of totemic power to 
living in better relationship to nature. Um, you know, it's just like working within those symbolic economies while also making the case that, you know, this is a more sensible way to live, a more sustainable, let's say, way to live um, is a really difficult communicational challenge, you know? So, so in a, like, in sort of discussions like this, I always like to sort of point out the American Enterprise Institute Walkable Neighborhoods Program. I believe that's what it's called. They're, they're, uh, sorry, walkable oriented development right. um, is, you know, like a conservative think tank has a research program, uh, a policy program about how walkability is going to create better neighborhoods, a better society. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I can tell you that program has been around for a while. Um and, um, you know, it's sort of like I would like to think it's kind of like, <laughs> like the, an obvious thing to look at if you care about, right, pro-family, pro-neighborhood and so on policies. Let's figure out whether, you know, in some sense, yeah, there is a better way to organize ourselves as a society than, you know, the predominant ever larger single family homes, ever further out, bigger cars and so on and so forth, right? Okay, this is a conservative think tank in DC that has a serious research program and, you know, policy program around this question. Um, Hmm. Most conversations around urbanism, walkability, usually fall squirrely along the political spectrum, right? It's the conservative side who basically says, no, 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 this is, you know, 15-minute city is some liberal conspiracy theory type thing, right? And the liberals who then, you know, dig themselves in and say, you know, oh, you're conservative bourbonites, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is, us, you know, the so- socialism demands that we live closer together in smaller units and, you know, walk everywhere and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then there is AEI, American Enterprise Institute, with a research policy program, basically, you know, cutting across the aisle, if you will. Now, okay, mm-hmm. not to present AEI now here as you know gods, but but yeah, but it's an interesting. You yeah, know, they're onto something. To the rule, right? Uh, of like course, the, right. Yeah. And by the way, okay, is that degrowth? Mm. Well, it means you know, smaller apartments, uh, less physical space taken up by individual homes. Uh, fewer cars, and by the way, cars, right, cost quite a bit of money and add quite a bit of, you know, money to GDP and so on. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, is that the, like, yeah, in a sense, you could call it that if packaging it as that, you know, gets you somewhere. Now, of course, AEI would never call it degrowth, but actually that's the point, right? This is well beyond this broad philosophical discussion of, you know, is growth good? Yes, no. And is much, much closer to uh, the conversation of, wait, what are the sort of levers to look at? What are the sort of ways to, frankly, improve the way we organize ourselves, to go back to that phrase? And, mm-hmm. well, AEI, much like the you know lefty urban YIMBY, um, have apparently come up with very similar solutions, which, by the way, yes, will also cut CO2 emissions mm-hmm. yeah, as a result. Weird. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's you know, the kind of, it's, it's emphasizing, I could, you could say health over wealth, right? Like, um, and, and health, rare, it feels like health rarely gets brought into the conversation around the, uh, around climate breakdown, which I find so strange. Um, you know, when I teach health communication, I do refer to the climate crisis as, as also a health crisis. Um, and people bristle because it, they see it more as a, a line with like crisis communication than health communication. But it's 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 the case that um, you know an enormous number of people, millions, die every year from air pollution, according to the Economist. Um, and and yeah, like that information doesn't necessarily get brought into the sort of purview of of health communication for whatever reason. Um, perhaps because it was just 
short, short, short circuit established ways of thinking about health, which are pretty individualistic, I, I think. Um, but anyway, like to kind of shift gears to some extent, uh, I wanted to talk about sort of um, the industry to some extent and technology and, and the sort of, you know, continued denialism that exists, or at least deflection that exists where you have um, the industry really banking on uh, the emergence of these technologies like carbon capture and storage, or like the industry presenting itself as an ally in climate action, Um, you know, as though the companies that like created the crisis are going to voluntarily take a role in addressing it. Um, You even have, you know, you mentioned uh, natural gas or fossil gas, like you have states talking about how they're going to exploit these huge reserves of fracked gas because it's seen as like a bridge fuel. It's better than coal. Um, You know, I guess the the question I want to ask is like, how do we deal with the fact that there are still companies like BP, Shell, ExxonMobil, Saudi Aramco that like will look at the truth of climate breakdown um, and just invest in massive numbers of new fossil fuel projects? Like it's not denialism. It's not deceit. It's something way more brazen than that. Is that a thing that we can just like understand in purely economic terms? How do you... I don't know. How do you think about that as a climate economist? Well, okay. So the, I mean, the purely economic analysis is, look, the incentives are pointing in the wrong direction, right? Sure. It's, it's profitable to frack. It's profitable to do the sort of things that you and I might look at and say, yeah, we shouldn't be doing this anymore, right? Mm-hmm. We know enough to know. Well, we know enough to know as a society. And at the same time, yeah, we still subsidize fossil fuels, you know, billions mm-hmm. of dollars a year globally. Um, and, you know, we don't ask those companies, force those companies to internalize the negative externality generated by those activities. They're massive externalities. And of right. course, that's the problem, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you can talk a big game about doing good and you can write your ESG reports and sustainability reports and so on. But if it's still profitable to do the nasty, dirty stuff, the polluting, um, then, you know, somebody somewhere is going to do it. And, you know, those massive companies that have made quite a bit of money um, digging up CO2 and uh, digging up uh, fossil fuels and burning it, um, burning them. uh, uh, Yeah, they will continue to do so as long as it's profitable to do that. Right. Um, So, of course. The task is, and now we're back to where we started, right? Pricing mm-hmm. carbon writ large, right? Of course, the task is to move away from the you know, high carbon, low efficiency world to a low carbon, high efficiency world. And to do that with a combination of policy on the one hand, yes, of course, and to basically figure out the low carbon, high efficiency business models that are in fact profitable and they exist. They very much do, right? right. Um, and move in that direction, right? I mean, this is sort of, um, okay, like not to bring it back to the walkable neighborhoods bit again, right? But mm-hmm. um, well, like those sorts of more desirable places to live, well, on a squ- per square foot, per square meter basis, command quite a bit of money much more money than the, you know, sprawling Bourbonite single family home, of course, right? In some sense, that's part of the problem, right? It's so un, mm-hmm. like, it's so expensive to quote unquote, do the right thing, right? Live in the walkable neighborhood um, that, you know, lots of families choose otherwise. Okay. That's a market signal. That's a price signal pointing in many ways in precisely the wrong direction. Now, what do you do? How do you do this? Yeah, of course, right? Changing norms, shifting norms, and so on, certainly mm-hmm. part of the solution, which is yeah, to yeah. basically say, like, yes, right? Like, we need to get away from this mindset that, you know, you can only live properly as a young family with a couple young kids if you live in the sprawling bourbon mansion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the good life, so, uh, sort of. Um, of course, right? So, so norms play a big role, right? Of course they do. And this is where the American Enterprise Institute's walkability program comes in and so on and so forth, right? There's a bit of that. 
On the other hand, economics, of course, plays a huge role. The two things have to be seen as connected, right? Of course, and they are, right? So we don't build enough of the sort of homes that would allow more families to live in walkable neighborhoods close, you know, in the urban core, right? And, you know, we don't. We, we, we just don't, right? That's why, in many ways, the price signals go in that direction of square, per square foot, per square meter prices are so high. Okay, back mm-hmm. to your question around, you know, fossil fuel interests and so on. Yeah. Well. You know, di- different example, but exactly the same thing, right? Like, you know, do norms and so on play a big role? Of course they do, right? Mm-hmm. If you basically live in a way, in a, you know, decarbonized home and well-insulated home and so on, and you've cut your electricity, or, well, you cut the gas line, right? Let's start with that, right? Like you stop burning fossil fuels in your home because it turns out that the induction stove and the heat pump are just fundamentally better technologies than what has come before, mm-hmm. right? And they are. And by the way, there is an induction plate available at IKEA for 50 bucks or 60 bucks or so, right? Like basically, this is not, oh, yes, this is sure, this is like for the rich and so on. No, it's not. It really isn't. It's a mm-hmm. fundamentally better technology that allows you to stop burning fossil fuels in your home you know, stop poisoning your kids while you're at it and giving them asthma and so on. Um, and of course, cutting CO2 emissions too. Um, but then it also comes down to the raw economics and setting mm-hmm. the economic incentives in the right direction. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, definitely part of uh, uh, this shift, this mm-hmm. what I would call, again, positive tipping point where we do see massive changes in the right directions, rapid changes in the right direction, and, and you know, no turning back, right? Like, um, this is what is, uh, you know, asked before about bans and the role of these sorts of regulations. Like, yeah, it is absolutely appropriate for neighborhoods, for entire cities, right? New York City, New York State, one of them, to basically ban gas connections to new homes by right. essentially saying, look, there's a better way to do this. We don't have to lock ourselves in decades more of burning fossil fuels in your own home if there mm-hmm. is a better alternative available and it's better for you, it is cheaper, it's better for the planet, and so on and so forth. Right? This is like yeah. the, the George W. Bush light bulb efficiency standard, right? Like, you know, he, he you know, Bush was the one who signed the standard into right. law that mm-hmm. effectively banned incandescent light bulbs and mm-hmm. we are better off for it. And like created uh, sort of a domino effect globally, where for the most part, that's the standard everywhere. Absolutely. Um, yes. Like, I mean, if you, you, know, are, you know, you're a massive, you know, you're a Siemens, right? You're a General Electric, right? Like you're not going to produce one type of bulbs for one uh, jurisdiction and uh, another type of bulb for another. If the better technology, the better LEDs are better for everybody, right? Better for you as a business model. And mm-hmm. uh, yes, again, better for the planet, better for consumers, and so on and yeah. so forth. And it's funny, like, I think, you know, I'm seeing, at least in some places, uh, people sort of uh, 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 reject the idea of a completely clean transition uh, to renewables in the sense of, like, where the materials come from, right? I'm, I know that you've uh, keyed into this uh, debate as well, but the idea that, you know, um, electrifying transportation, for example, is going to ma- it's going to cause this massive increase in the extraction of certain minerals um, and, and that, you know, there are going to be whole countries, communities that are going to be, if, if that doesn't happen ethically, um, devastated in the same way that fossil fuel has ex- extraction has devastated particular um, places. The so-called resource curse is not um, unique to fossil fuel extraction. And I kind of wanted to get, you know, maybe to, you know, return to the question of, um, Africa, a continent that is disproportionately, uh, not responsible for the climate crisis. And yet might, you know, it almost certainly will suffer the worst impacts, you know, for that shift to happen ethically, we can't discount the kind of larger global frame and, and considering the question of social justice globally um, as somehow like unrealistic, I think like that's that's where my head's at. Right. And I, I wondered because you've written a lot about equity in terms of like the social cost of carbon. How do we consider that and not see that as just like a, uh, an afterthought, you know? 
Okay, so uh, I did, okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I guess let me start with this, right? So, tackling CO two emissions is a good thing. Let's start with that. Um, but no, tackling CO two emissions is not going to solve every social problem out there, right? So this is not oh wow, we finally found the problem that if that problem, right, if we fix that one, we will fix everything else at once, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely not. And by the way, yes, of course, there are some trade-offs. There always are, right? This is, you know, ever since philosopher Mick Jagger, right? We, you know, you can't always get what you want, right? So yeah, there are trade-offs, well-known. And um, yes, by shifting rapidly, um, appropriately so, I would say, because of the climate problem, but by shifting rapidly uh, toward uh, low-carbon technologies, we are, in fact, opening up some other problems. Of course, we are. We need to set the right labor standards globally and you know, name and shame the companies that uh, skirt them abroad while talking a big game at home in the, right, in the Western democracy and so on and so forth. Of course, we are opening up some of these problems. Right? This is the famous cover of The Economist from Petrostate to Electrostate. Right, mm-hmm. like the you know moving away from petro and toward electro, that's the good part. Uh, the fact that you know that's yet again um, a state, a, a country that is not exactly a democracy here, right? The electro state, mm-hmm. China in this case, um, and that opens up problems in and of itself. That is a massive problem to consider as we are engaging in this rapid transition. At the same time. Um, is the well is the negative externality we are fixing we are solving in this process is that you know quote unquote worth it to do well you know that's where that's where global geopolitics uh, and so on comes in and where the weighing of these trade-offs is crucial is important mm-hmm. and where no the answer isn't always clear in every one of these instances but frankly in general um, just sort of looking at the material throughput, if you will, right? Like this is sort of back to you know, a technocratic way of looking at this. Um, the hundreds of billions of tons, um, whatever your metric is, right? Weight or, or volume of mm-hmm. fossil fuels that are being burned, right? They're being dug up, uh, moved across the globe and then burned, Um uh, in no comparison to like orders of magnitude less of the minerals, the precious metals, and so on, necessary to produce the solar panels, to produce the wind turbines, to produce the the um, the low carbon technologies. So, no, we are not solving every problem, and we are opening up some others in the process. Mm-hmm. At the same time, are there better ways to produce electricity? to generate energy, uh, 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 create the useful form of energy here, um, than the burning of fossil fuels? Absolutely. And we are, in fact, decreasing overall our environmental footprint as we do so. Um, You know, orders of magnitude, right? Two or three orders of magnitude less of materials needed to produce the same kind of electricity energy with um, solar panels, low carbon technologies compared to fossil fuels. It's to be continued, right? Like we have by no means, as you just sort of uh, framed it, like solved all these problems. Um, But, you know, I like your point that gains are being made uh, while, you know, like that we're trending in the right direction. Um, And, and, you know, like that, it, I'm certainly not going to ask about the the question of you know whether you have uh, you're optimistic or pessimistic whether you have <laughs> hope. Um, I think like it's the job of people who are doing this analysis to try and make hope convincing. Like the the onus is on us uh, in some sense to talk about how energy systems can be more efficient and less destructive and how we can like live in more like vibrant societies basically it's 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 the job of the American Enterprise Institute right and it's walkable oriented development <laughs> program to figure out how to make walkable urbanism palatable or desirable 
to, frankly, the usual clientele of the American Enterprise Institute, right? So it's not mm-hmm. the job of, you know, the lefty liberal urbanite um, necessarily, or for the matter, they're not the right messenger to do this. And absolutely, right? It is about, frankly, making the better, more desirable, um, lower carbon way of organizing ourselves, both using the lower carbon technologies on the one hand, and then right figuring out a way to to make use of them, to use them to reorganize ourselves as society. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, to make that the more desirable alternative, right? To make it cheaper on the one hand, and overall more desirable. And yeah, it takes all of the above, right? It does take mm-hmm. AEI to talk about walkable oriented development as something desirable and make it look you know, make it look sexy make it look mm-hmm. like something you want to do uh, because it's better for your family because it's better for you and your loved ones um, and yes it takes telling positive stories like that to achieve this transition yeah that's I, it's a great place to kind of land i think um leaving us to kind of think about the right messenger and that challenge in relationship to the stuff we sort of know right which is that uh the the technology exists it's you know the cheapest source of electricity uh but there are these complex barriers that exist uh vested interests and so on so how do you you know continue to kind of um pull the levers you can pull all these metaphors, right? Keep momentum, gain traction. Um, you know, this is, it, it, it remains the struggle, even in the aftermath of so many climate disasters over the last few months, and unfortunately more to come. Like, this is, this is the, this is part of the discussion too. It's like, there are people for whom this is, you know, um, these wildfires, for example, have been uh, life-changing and, and place-redefining. Um, but just showing people the charts and the numbers, the lines going off the chart, quite literally, um, it's just, uh, to me, that is not as impactful as trying to provide sort of a narrative that explains, you know, what is possible, what is sort of discussed as uh, impossible, and uh, the place of you in it, right? Like this idea of just trying to expand the circle beyond this fossilized thinking or this existing uh, fairly exclusionary, um, you know, let's say eco-socialist thinking, um, just trying to create a, a, yeah, a a system by which more people can be included uh, in the the context of what we might call climate action is part of the challenge for sure. Exactly. A better world is possible and it's desirable for you, your family, your loved ones. Mm -hmm. And yes, and you know, and the planet. Yes, of course. Of course, yeah. Anyway, thanks so much. Uh, this has been really, really interesting. Um, always great talking to you. Thanks, Scott.